As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. Don't buy for appreciation, buy for cash flow. Put long-term debt in place and have adequate cash reserves. So as long as we have those three things, you are mitigating your risks as much as you possibly can. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. All you experienced Best Ever listeners who are looking at value-add multifamily syndication, well, we're going to open up your eyes to a different type of approach, and that is affordable housing tax credit development. Evan Holiday is going to be debating Theo Hicks on which strategy is best for you. And they're ranking it based on four factors, barrier of entry, risk, returns, and maintainable in a downturn. So enjoy this debate. Theo Hicks representing value-add multifamily syndication. Evan Holiday representing affordable housing tax credit development. And when you identify which one is right for you, go to bestevercommunity.com. And let us know which one you're going to be doing or which one you're going to be learning more about. Hello, everyone. And thank you for tuning in to our second best ever debate. We are filming live on Facebook right now, but you may also be listening on our podcast, The Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. And I am joined by Theo Hicks and Evan Holiday. Theo, how are you doing today? Doing great, Grant. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Like I mentioned, I'm a little nervous have my voice on a podcast for the first time ever. <laughs> You're going to do great, Grant. <laughs> Thanks. Evan, how is it going today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So today, Theo and Evan will be debating value-add apartment syndication, that's Theo's side, versus affordable housing tax credit development, that's Evan's side. So a little bit about <laughs> Evan. First of all, he was a best ever guest already on the podcast. So if you haven't heard it, it is episode 1,367 titled Hustle Leads to Dream Job as an Affordable Housing Developer with Evan Holiday. 
He's a real estate developer and investor. He's the host of Monumental Podcast, developed over $100 million in new construction multifamily at LDG Development, and they use tax credits to create affordable and mixed-income communities. Based in Louisville, say hi to him at evanholiday.com. And a little bit about Theo. He's a creative project manager and investor, part of a team that has syndicated over $300 million in value-add apartments, co-author of two books, The Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever, Volume 1 and Volume 2, based in Tampa, Florida, and say hi to him on Facebook. So with that, guys, we'll start with Evan. You want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, I think you covered a lot of it, Grant, but just to add on to that a little bit, I've been with LDG about five years, been in real estate, I guess coming on 10 years, and really got started in college, got obsessed with development, started a development company in college, and took that out and got into affordable housing, new construction multifamily development, mainly do 200 plus unit developments and work a lot in Nashville, New Orleans, Tennessee, and Louisiana. Those are my main markets, but I absolutely love it. I love real estate and I'm glad to be here today. Awesome. Theo, I think the best ever listeners probably know about your background, but you want to give us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I started in real estate in February of 2015, I believe, by house hacking a duplex and then I kind of took a little break after that property for about a year. And then uh, the process of getting back into real estate, I hooked up with Joe and I've been working with him for the past over two years now, approaching three years. So I've learned a ton about apartment syndications by just working with him and helping him out with his business. And I just made this move to Tampa. I was in Cincinnati before, so I planned on you know, trying to start my own syndication business there, but Instead, I'm starting it down here in Tampa. So I'm, looking, I'm in the process of learning the market and I've met some property managers and some brokers and now we're just looking for a deal. Awesome. I know we'll be hearing more about that on future Fall Along Friday episodes. So <laughs> looking forward to that. All right, into the debate. So we have five categories that you guys are going to rank one to five. One being easy, five being hard, or in the case of returns, and others, one being low and five being high. So the five categories are barrier of entry, risk, returns, maintainable, and a downturn. That's only four. So four. Four categories. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go ahead. We'll take turns and we'll let Evan go first on barrier of entry. What do you got for us? Okay. So you want us to rate each one individually, not as a whole, right? Correct. Okay. So for barrier entry, I think the biggest things to take into account with new construction is new construction and tax credit development. They're both have a high barrier to entry. And that is a good thing and a bad thing. And really the barriers to entry come from a lot of different things. I mean, you look at it's, I'm going to go through some of the things that may not be good to get into multifamily, but it also helps you if you're Getting into multifamily, it helps you protect against others that are trying to get into that industry of new construction or tax credit development. So if you're doing new construction, you have to really work with communities and try to figure out exactly what they want. You have to make sure they're on board. You have to make sure the city council members are on board. You have to make sure the mayor is on board. 
And really anybody along that process, as far as the political side or even the planning side, has a lot to say with how your development turns out or can say yay or nay on support of your project that can potentially kill your development. So that's a big barrier to entry for new construction. But if you're able to work with communities, like our company LDG has done very well in working those relationships and being able to get through that zoning process, the permitting process, the design development process, then that is going to enable you to create those long-term relationships with cities that enable you to do not just one deal, but many deals with a community if you do it right. So I think that's a high barrier to entry, but I think that also adds a lot of value if you're getting into it. It means that first deal is going to be a whole heck of a lot tougher. But once you get that first deal done and you've done a good job and you put your all into that first deal, then that makes the next two through 10 deals that much easier because you have those relationships and you have that track record. The other side of it is with new construction, there's also that unprovenness of the market. You're building something that's brand new. It has no track record, but that is a barrier to entry because it makes it harder, but it also is a good thing because you're building something that is brand new and it's going to add a lot more value to your investors And it's harder to build, but that also is good because then you don't have as many competitors coming right behind you and just copy paste and doing exactly what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It it makes it harder for others to get into that neighborhood or, or that city and do exactly what you're doing. So that helps protect your investment. So I think that covers on the barrier to entry. Yeah, definitely. That was great. And thank you for that great explanation. What would you rate it one to five, five being hard? probably like a four and a half. (laughs) It's pretty, it's pretty high up there. Fair enough. All right, Theo, barrier of entry for value add apartment syndications. I would say, I think it's definitely lower than development, but it's not a one or two. I'd probably give it around a three because there's a couple of factors for value add that just take a couple of years. For example, experience. You need to have some sort of real estate experience prior to becoming an apartment syndicator. It can be something as simple as doing your own deals yourself, but ideally you've been involved in apartments in some form or fashion, whether it be as a broker or property working for a property management company or working for a syndicator. So having some involvement and experience in apartment syndication that you can leverage when having conversations with your team members. This is necessarily a requirement in a sense that you won't be able to literally do an apartment syndication if you don't have this, but you're not going to be able to do it successfully if you don't have this, which is education. So you need to know what you're talking about. You need to know the terms and the terminology. And I'm sure this is the same for development, but you need to know what you're talking about. So when you're having conversations with your team members, which includes your investors, you come across as a credible person. And of course, you need to have the education and experience to actually prove that you're able to execute on the deal. You also need to find private money. So depending on where you're at in your life, depending on what job you do, your relationships you have, they could be as easy as picking up the phone and calling up your friends, or it could be something that's going to require more proactive effort in a sense that you have to start to form relationships with other people and go to places where there are high net worth individuals. Now, of course, for all of these things, you can offset them by partnering with someone, but you'll have to have one of these things. So you'd have to have either access to private money or the experience. And so if you have experience, you can partner with someone who has access to private money, but maybe doesn't have as much experience which is what I'm doing. Or if you have access to a bunch of private money, but don't know what you're doing, you can find an operator that 
does know what they're doing. So you can kind of offset the barrier of entry there, which is why I rank it a little bit lower by partnering up. So I think experience and education are what you need to be an apartment syndicator. And for a value-add apartment syndicator, and depending on where you're at in your real estate career, you may or may not have that. So the barrier to entry, I would just give it on average a three. If you have those things, it's going to be a lot easier. But if you don't, it's going to be more difficult or at least take more time to get those things. Right. Both strategies are pretty similar on the barrier of entry. It's not something for a newbie investor. You at least need a good amount of education or a great team in place that has experience. So clearly, they're pretty similar there. And Theo, we'll go back to you now with risks. How much risk is involved with value-add apartment syndication? Okay, I think the rest of these are pretty variable because it depends on how you buy it, what your business plan is. Based off of our strategy, I gave risks a two because I think one is unrealistic. And here's why. And I know we recently recorded a video on this on YouTube talking about the three immutable laws of real estate investing. And those are don't buy for appreciation, buy for cash flow, put long-term debt in place, and have adequate cash reserves. And so as long as we have those three things, you are mitigating your risks as much as you possibly can. And when I think of risk, I think of capital preservation. So when I'm ranking this, I'm ranking it how at risk is the investor's capital, not what they're going to make, but just the actual capital they gave me. How at risk is that if they were to invest in a value-add apartment deal? And I can go into more details on those three, but as long as you have those three in place, you're mitigating the risk. For example, if you buy for cash flow and not appreciation, and by any appreciation, maybe natural appreciation of the market just going up, not forced appreciation, which is kind of the key to value add, which is <laughs> making some sort of improvement to the physical or the operations of the property in order to increase revenue or decrease expenses, which in turn increases the value of the property. That is different than the appreciation I'm talking about. I'm talking about buying a property, thinking that, you know, oh, that for the past 10 years, rents have gone up 10% every single year. Or for the last 10 years, values have gone up 10%. That's going to happen for the next 10 years. And after 10 years, my property will be worth this much more. You don't want to do that. Because again, if the market does not continue to go up, you're going to be in trouble. For long-term debt, very similar. If you have a business plan that's five years, you want to make sure that the debt is set up for seven years. That might involve doing a refinance after a few years, but always making sure that you aren't forced to refinance, aren't forced to sell your property. Because if you're forced to do anything, it's most likely not for a beneficial reason. And then the adequate cash reserves is pretty self-explanatory. If something comes up and you don't have the money, then you're going to lose the property. All right. And Evan, before you tell us the risk level with your strategy, would you give us, and best ever listeners, again, he was on the podcast already talking about his strategy, episode 1367. But Evan, would you give us like a quick breakdown of what your strategy is? Because it's not just apartment community development. It's a little bit more involved. Right. Good point. So at LDG, what we do is we do new construction and we use tax credits from the federal government that help cover some of the costs for building affordable housing. And in return, we're setting our rents. We're kind of capping our rents based on whatever the average person is making in that metro area. And we're taking that below the average to help provide a reasonable rent for people. So they're paying no more than like 30% of their check or their monthly income on rent. So that gives them a safe, stable, quality place to call home and raise a family and helps 
provide housing for all the people that are working in an economy that provide all the services that we use on a day-to-day basis, but they are not reasonably being taken care of on the housing side. Especially nowadays, you're seeing more and more developers or even rehab of existing and the rents just keep skyrocketing. So these people keep getting pushed further and further out of town and further and further away from their jobs. So that's becoming a real issue. And it always has been an issue, but now even more so also because more people are renting. So it's just inevitably driving up rents. So that's the value we add is we provide affordable housing, but yet the same quality as the market rate housing that's just down the street, but we can provide it at a reasonable rent and help provide a good foundation for families. Perfect. Where are you going for that? I've got just two quick follow-up questions pretty fast. Do these tax credits cover the entire cost to build? And then do you guys sell these afterwards or do you hold on to them? There's two different types of tax credits. There's one that covers 70% of the construction costs. That's very competitive. You have to fit into a tiny little hole to score well to get those credits. We do not go after those credits. We go after the less competitive credits, the credits that are more readily available, but they don't cover nearly as much. They cover only about 30 to 40%. So you have to fill that last 60% with debt. So we leverage up to 50 to 60% of the cost. And then we also fill in the last 10% with either putting in our own fee toward the deal, our own equity, or we get a tax abatement from a city that we can in turn borrow more money against, or we ask for a soft loan payable out of cash flow type thing from the city or the state. Okay, cool. And then as far as owning, we develop and own all of our properties. Tax credit compliance period is 15 years but our company has made it our strategy to build and hold. So we haven't disposed of any of our properties. Okay. That aligns with the wanting to provide housing for the... Right, right. And that way we can keep it affordable long-term. That makes sense. Cool. I thought that was necessary so that we could have some context with... Yeah, definitely. ...category. So (laughs) so knowing that now, what would you say the risk level is for your strategy? So for risk with both tax credit and new construction. And I guess this applies to all real estate. You are at the whim of the financial market. You're at the whim of the total economy. So whatever you're deciding today, by the time you're ready to close, it may not be the case as far as interest rates or demand or investor demand. But I think that is really amplified with new construction and tax credit development because new construction, you're just dealing with a longer lead time the quickest deal I've ever closed. It took me a year from finding the land to getting the permits, to getting the financing, to starting construction. It took me a year. That was the quickest I've ever closed a deal. So, you know, rehab, you can close much quicker than that, but new construction, you're dealing with longer timeframes. I've closed a deal. It took me three years to get across the finish line. So that is a big risk. So I I put that at four because there is a lot of inherent front end risk with new construction development. You're dealing with timing. Three years, a lot can change. So that's a big variable that you have to be aware of and be able to mitigate. And one of the ways to mitigate that is to by having deal flow, having that pipeline of working on 10 deals at once to close two to four deals a year type thing. So that front end risk, you're putting money on the line. You're putting money on the line for design development, for permitting, for reports. So that's all big risk that you're putting up front. But on the back end, what I would say is 
especially with affordable housing development and new construction affordable housing, the risk just drops off precipitously. Once you get through construction, construction is also a big risk because you have to make sure you're managing it well. You have to make sure you have a good GC. But once you're successfully built it, you've leased it up, that is when the risk just for the most part, as long as you have a good economy in that area, you are almost, I don't want to say risk-free, but you've very much lowered your risk because we're dealing with affordable housing. Our rents are capped, like I said a little earlier. And because of that, always our investors look for at least a 10% rent cushion, basically below market rate rents. And sometimes those rents, like cities where rents are skyrocketing, market rate rents are just out of control, Nashville being one of them, we have like a 50 to 100% rent cushion. So you can imagine when somebody's needs an affordable place to live and they see our place that looks just as good as a market rate place down the street, but costs half as much. It makes their choice a lot easier and financially it makes their choice a lot easier. So that's the cushion that provides much less risk on the backside because we're always, at least right now, the last five years, we've been close to a hundred percent on all of our properties with wait lists. So it's that demand for affordable housing that's kept it just being able to cash flow the property and create good long-term real estate assets. So you're double-sided there. You're really high on risk until it's built and then the risk kind of drops down considerably. Right. Okay. Well, I don't imagine that anyone could move into these buildings, right? Like, cause like, for example, if, if you're saying that, you know, Nashville, your rents are 50 to hundred percent lower than the regular rents. And everyone that's renting in those places that look the exact same that are paying way more they can't just come to your place, right? Only a certain type of person can move in. Right, right. So they're income limited, basically. Okay. You have to make an income that is low enough that you need that type of housing. So it's not just open to anybody. It's open to people that are policemen, firemen, entry-level jobs, some sort of support role, paralegal, whatnot. People that are working, but are coming in at that entry-level job that need housing, but don't have the ability to pay $1,800, $2,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And don't need all the car wash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't need the amenities. Yeah. All right, Theo, what do you got for us with, you already did risk. Let's go back to Evan now. Evan, how are the returns with the mixed income affordable housing tax credit development? The returns, just in general, I would say it's vastly different the way we look at returns for a development. We don't have a sharing of cash flow with our investors. It's very different because, and I guess I'll give my number first. I'd say returns, I'd probably put it at about probably a four. seems to be my number today. (laughs) So the returns for affordable housing development, at least the way that we're doing it now at LDG is we've been able to build out our own units. So we act as our own GC. So For the return side, we're able to be able to make that general contractor profit. We take that risk, but we make that profit. And over the years, we've been able to repeat, repeat, repeat. So we know what we're doing by now. So the returns are great because we can not only make that profit on the construction side, but we can also go in and we get a developer fee as a incentive to do affordable housing. Each state allows a certain percentage. So we get paid that developer fee or we can put part of that into the deal as our equity, but we can get paid part of that out of as early as closing or through stabilization. And then after that, we can get paid that out of cash flow. 
and we get paid that first because there's an incentive. The RX tax code for tax credit development put an incentive in there to make sure that's paid off by year 15. So our investors, they're positively motivated to push us to make sure we get that paid in time or else we have to pay that back ourselves. That's a big tax event. It's not a good thing. So we get paid first cash flow. And then really the investors just want one, the tax credits, which we get from the federal government who gives it to the states. So they just want the tax credits. We get the cash flow and the back end at year 15, we'll get the investor out. We'll buy them out for a much smaller fee than you would a typical market rate development. So we'll buy them out and then we can have that asset just producing regular cash flow. And we get the cash flow of the 15 years because of the developer fee. So we look at it differently where we're getting a majority of the cash flow. The cash flow typically won't be as high as a market rate development, but we're able to get that front end construction. And then we also are able to get the developer fee and the cash flow and not really have to share that as much as you would on a typical market rate development. Right. And when you get most of the cash flow, it's okay if the cash flow is a little lower, you're getting a bigger chunk of it. Exactly. Theo, let's go to you. First, do you have any questions for Evan on the returns? I don't think so. He did a really good job explaining the returns. <laughs> it's hard to say like an actual number as a percentage because you're not really putting your own money in there. So it's technically infinite. But no, I figure that the apartment syndication is an acquisition fee. Did you get paid at closing? So that sounds like kind of what that developer's fee is. Right. And then I think the biggest advantage for you is that after 15 years, the whole thing is yours. Like you have all of it. You know? Right. Yeah. We pay some smaller fee, but yeah, it's much easier to take full ownership of the development in affordable. So for, for my end for returns, and then five is like high returns, one is low. I put it a, a three right below the developer. I wouldn't say that the returns are, are higher, assuming that you're actually completing the deal. I think it is interesting that it takes a lot longer to do a development deal. And as you said, there's more risk during that time period. Usually for <sighs> an apartment syndication, it you close within 60 to 90 days after you put the deal under contract. And so, yeah, sure, things could potentially go wrong during that time period, but not as likely. Something that's, that's different between the business model that you uh, implement and then the value-add business model is that for yours, yours is more like literally a long-term hold. Like you're holding on to these suckers for at least 15 right. years. Whereas our business plans are five-year holds, as you usually project. So the drawback that you could say would be that you're not – necessarily having that consistent cash flow you have to continually to do deals but the positive is you can scale it way faster joe's exploded in the past three years because of how quickly you can do these deals once you start having access to private capital so from a return perspective why i say a three and not a four is because as evan said he gets access to all that cash flow whereas on, on our end we have to give the majority of that cash flow to the past investors from our actual return perspective for passive investors, it's great because they're just giving us the money and then each month they get a preferred return. And then at the end of a year, any cash flow above that return will get distributed. Then of course, there's the force appreciation that we do. So what's good is that if you buy the deal right, you can cash flow from day one. So you don't have to, to wait to pay your investors until all your renovations are completed. So I think that's a huge plus that from day one, once you identify a deal, 90 days later, the deal closes. And then within the first two months, generally, they'll get their first check. It's also the potential for a refinance so they can get a portion of their equity back within the first couple of years. Because again, since we're forcing appreciation, we're gaining all that equity that we have. And that's something that you can pull out and refinance into a new loan. 
especially in kind of combination with that law number two, long-term debt. You've got a five-year business plan. You've only got a five-year loan. You're probably going to want to do some sort of refinance year two or three so that that new five-year loan that pushes you out to eight years. That way, if the market is not where it needs to be at five years, you can wait. You're not forced to sell it or refinance at that point. And of course, since we are actually selling the property, that's when the path investors and the apartment syndicator makes the most money. Because again, you bought it at $10 million, you have forced appreciation of $7 million. And so you're making that take away some fees and taxes. You're making $7 million that gets split between you and your investors. And of course, returns also vary depending on how you structure your syndication. The most common is an 8% preferred return and then some sort of split afterwards, like a 70 or 30 split. But then sometimes they might cap that. They might cap the investor returns at a certain IRR. So say like a 16% IRR or something. Then once that gets hit, which is not going to happen until sale, then that split will be reduced and then the syndicator themselves will make even more money. So again, I'll give it a three. I don't 100% understand the development, but just from my understanding, the returns are definitely higher because you've got a much higher risk, of course. So that's what offsets the risk is the benefits at the end. And I would say that it is really interesting for your specific business model and the risk and that you know, there's all that risk up front. But once you get past there, it's like, oh, all right, we're here. Yeah. We made it. <laughs> and it just like drops below everything else. Because as you said, you're gonna have access to it. the supply of renters that you have are always going to be really high. I just wanted to say that I'm very envious of anybody that can close in 60 to 90 days. <laughs> yeah, one year being your shortest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's nice that you guys actually owned the whole thing after the 15 years with the value-add syndication, at least if you're doing an equity raise, the syndicator never really owns the whole property. The investors stay in it. Of course, you can do a debt raise, but I think the equity raise is the more popular for obvious reasons. Right. I wanted to ask Theo if you said you're mainly targeting like a five-year hold add value and then after year five, either refinance or flip. Are you guys looking at holding on to or buying out any of your investors on any of your deals? No. The investors stay in the entire time. That's kind of like one of the selling points for them is that they're in the whole time. And that's what kind of what Grant was saying. There's like the equity versus debt. So if you equity, then you're raising money and then you're paying them a preferred return, like a bank. In that case, if you refinance, you can give them all their money back and maybe like a 12% profit on top of that. And then, yeah, you own the entire deal. Some syndicators do that, but we do the equity, which means that the investors stay in the whole time. The only time any sort of buyout would maybe happen is if investor needs to get out for some reason. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it wouldn't be something that we would come to them and offer it or force them to do it or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I think the five-year model seems to be the point of very good returns, but it can definitely add more you're constantly having to go out and find the next deal, exactly. which is same in any real estate. It's same in new construction. We're constantly having to fill our pipeline so we can start with 10 to close two. But yeah, it's just interesting to hear the other side of it. My personal strategy is to syndicate until I have enough money where I can passively invest in syndications. That way I'm kind of reducing my time commitment. I still have to analyze deals and I still have to actually do some work, but it's obviously going to be drastically reduced. Right. Cool. So let's move on to how maintainable it is in a downturn. And we are back to Theo again. So one being very maintainable in a downturn, five being not very maintainable in a downturn. What you got? So I got, I got ahead of myself and I addressed this when I was talking about those three laws. And again, this is one of those things that it's highly dependent on your business plan. It's highly dependent on how you buy the property and how you set up your business plan. I said the three laws are buy for cash flow, long-term debt, 
have adequate reserves. If you ignore those when you buy the property, then it's not going to be maintainable at all during a downturn. If you buy it for appreciation, of course, the downturn is the reverse of that. And so you're not going to get your depreciation. So then if you're not cash flowing when you buy it, then how are you going to make money on the deal? If you don't have long-term debt, if you put some sort of short-term two-year bridge loan that doesn't have the option to buy another year or two, and then the market takes a dip at year 1.5, then you're in trouble because you either have to sell the property at a loss. I don't think you'll even be able to refinance at that point. And so you're going to be in trouble. So the reason why I give it a two is because for our strategy, we take all those things into account and we want to make sure that we're able to preserve our investors' capital in the event of a downturn. And how we actually do that is when we're actually underwriting a deal, we run a lot of sensitivity analysis. So you say, okay, so what would happen? For example, let's say we put a a loan on the property that is a floating rate. So what we'll do is we'll we'll buy a cap to that. So it can't go any higher than that cap. And then we'll run a sensitivity analysis. Like, all right, so what happens if it stays at the same rate for all five years? Okay, what happens if it goes up 0.5%, 1%, 1.5%? And that way we can see, all right, so worst case scenario if it hits the cap, we'll still be able to cash flow. Same thing for things like that when we're underwriting sensitivity analysis. We also do it for the rent premiums. So if the market's been increasing, rents have been increasing by 10%, we do run a rental comps, we find out that we can raise the rents by $100. But what happens if you can only raise it by 50? What happens if you can only raise it by 25? What if you can't raise the rents at all for a couple of years? Will it still actually cash flow? So those are the types of things that we actually do to, because I mean, you can just say these are the three laws, but what we actually do to make sure that it's going to be maintainable in the downturn is on that front end, making sure that we're underwriting the deal properly <clears throat> and that we have the proper debt in place. And then again, the cash reserve is kind of self-explanatory. It's making sure that you're raising additional money or getting additional money from a loan to cover any unexpected maintenance issues, like 10 boilers going out at once. If you don't have an operating fund, what are you going to do at that point? What happens if that happens and then the market goes down, right? So we got the cash flow to cover it, but then the market goes down and you lose that cash flow. What are you going to do? So just making sure that you kind of think of all these worst case scenarios and underwrite. Don't base your entire underwriting model on that, but make sure you're at least looking at that. And so you know that, hey, if something happens, am I going to be minus 20% cash flow or something? So yeah, summarize, as long as you're following those three laws, then again, you can't completely eliminate risk because you never know how big the downturn would actually be. But as long as you do that, then you're at least mitigating those risk areas of not cash flowing, having to get the property back to the bank, and, and kind of all those horror stories from 08. Yeah, and I obviously, working on the same team as you, I obviously agree with all three of those points. And I know how maintainable in a downturn Evans is going to be. But let's hear from you. And do you have any questions for Theo first? I don't think so. The only thing I would add is the adequate reserves. I 100% agree. I think that's very important. And then we've seen our investors since 2008 have made us put very significant reserves in. Interesting thing is for a new construction, we typically don't need them as much, at least from a capital improvements or capital maintaining the property because we build long-term. But sometimes there is that occasional, like you say, where you aren't getting the rents that you need and having that reserve has helped us cover certain gaps. But we've seen a requirement of those reserves from a lot of our investors. But as far as maintainable in a downturn, I would say like a one. (laughs) It's not easy, A, for new construction in general. There's just financing dries up, investors dry up. Our investors buy the tax credits and they're usually motivated for, they get a community reinvestment act, kind of like a grade 
that is given to them, I think, each year by the federal government. So the federal government says, okay, are you investing in all parts of the neighborhood that you're wanting to go into and do banking in, basically to combat redlining? So we have this pool of required bank investors that need our tax credits to get a good score. But even with that need for that score, they still sometimes are like, no, we're good. We don't want any tax credits right now. We can barely keep our doors open or whatever it is. They're trying to just maintain their own liquidity and they're not so much worried about buying tax credits when there's a downturn in the economy. So that's a huge negative. And the other side is just new construction in general. Nobody wants to finance it and take that risk. So that's the downside. The other downside is affordable housing. As much as we have that inherent skyrocketing demand, you also have to look at people's income levels. So when there's a downturn in the economy, usually the people that get hit the hardest, and it's unfortunate, but they're typically families that aren't making as much money to begin with. So our rent base, yeah, it's there, but you have to look at how much money they're making to be able to afford the rent. So if they've gone from being able to pay our rent previously to losing a job or going down to part-time, and now they're below what we can qualify as a qualified resident because they're making too little income and they can't pay the full rent. So it's a double-edged sword where you would think there's always demand for affordable housing, which is completely true but it's just at what rent levels, what income levels are you targeting? So there's always that inherent demand for affordable housing. And that's where you can get in those downturns. If you can get the cities or the states to financially step up and say, this issue is a big enough problem for our city. And even with the downturn in the economy, we're going to help fill the gap that was taken away from your investors, not putting in as much money or your construction lending, not putting in as much money will help fill that gap. So I'd say it's infinitely harder. Yeah, it can be done though, but it's just that much harder. And just to clarify, you said a one. I think a five. I think we just might've been backwards on oh, our scale. Yeah, a five, but, definitely. There's, there's something I guess that could mitigate risk slightly and that's by what you're doing, which is investing in those markets that have that huge 50 to 100% cushion. Because I, I can imagine what would happen is that you've got your cap in affordable housing here and if your competition is only 10% higher and the rents drop by 10%, right. then you're in big trouble. But if their rents are 100% higher and it drops 50%, then the demand is going to be still a little bit stronger. But I do understand what you mean by the fact that when there is a downturn, that would limit your property would see the reduction or be affected most by the downturn. Right. But something else I wanted to quickly mention about mine that I don't think I said, because I didn't say specifically what you do. with Prio wins debates. So no, I, I, something I, I just forgot is that if a downturn happens and you're doing a value add deal, as long as you follow those three rules, you just don't, you just keep the property. You don't do anything. You just keep the property. You're going to cash flow. You don't have to refinance. You don't have to sell. So the reason I brought this up is I'd imagine for you, for the deals that you actually have that are already finished, the risk is a lot lower for the deal that you're actually working on at the moment, like whether in the middle of construction or in the middle of that upfront front end due diligence aspect. So that's all yeah, I, I would agree to an extent, but I think you kind of hit it on the head is if there's not enough cushion between us and market rate and the market rate drops low enough, we've had to like in 2008 lower our rents because we're having to compete directly with market rate product. And we typically can't win against directly with market rate. So we have to inevitably lower our rents. All right, cool. I actually have a surprise question. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with Evan. If you could take one aspect of Theo's strategy and put it in your development strategy, 
what would it be? Closing in 60 to 90 days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I had a feeling. Uh, that was no, be. honestly, that's a big part of it is I think doing affordable housing, new construction has taught me a valuable lesson and that is patience. But the flip side of it is I want to do more deals. I want to be involved in more development, but it's harder to get that in new construction. So that's one thing I would want is, is an ability to close more quickly and create a bigger, more actionable development pipeline. Okay. Theo, what about you? What would you steal from the development aspect? I'd probably say that Evan's ability to own the property outright. Again, there's ways to do it in a permit syndication, but it's inherent in your strategy that you own it outright. And then you get all the cash flow too. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And it's funny, the yeah. grass is always greener on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> some aspects anyway. I'd totally be interested in doing development in the future at some point. It'd be cool just to do it, to see what it's yeah. like. But, like and, that, but not now. <laughs> you know, another thing I didn't touch on is just the, I guess you could call it the ego side of it. It's like, it's really cool to just oh, see really cool. come out of the ground where nothing existed before. That's mm-hmm. really cool. That's kind of what got me into it is like, I just, there's a development going in on my campus in college and I was like, I need to be a part of that. I need to learn from that guy. I need to figure out how he's doing that. That's so cool. Just building something out of nothing that and having be, that permanent value to that community, wherever it is for the next 50 to hundred years. That will be really cool to be a part of for sure. Yeah. That'll be the fifth category. Cool factor. <laughs> Development definitely has you beat. <laughs> so I added up everyone's numbers and I made up a little scale just now. And on my made up scale, let's see, Evan was a total of 17 and a half out of a possible <laughs> and a half. Yeah, because you threw in that half on the right. <laughs> but returns factor into that, and that's right. high as well. So let's take that out. So now we're down to 12 and a half, which on my made-up scale, we need some experience or education or a teammate that has a lot of that. You probably shouldn't be a newbie trying to get into development deals, but you don't have to be super experienced and flipped 100 houses or own 100 multifamily units already. If you're resourceful enough, you could definitely find that and get things done. And same thing with Theo's. If you take out returns of his three, then he's a seven, which on my made-up scale, I don't like my made-up scale anymore because (laughs) that means that a novice could do it. And I think you should be more like, same with with the development, you should be definitely more than a novice to be doing syndications. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up unless you guys have anything to add. Oh, I know we're going to do a rebuttals. Theo, what do you have for Evan on the rebuttal aspect? I think for both of okay. us, we got that in when we were going over each of the categories. I thought so too. Okay. All right. So for me personally, and I'm a little biased, but after hearing you guys' arguments, I go with the syndication side, mostly because of the risk of the front end. But that risk drops off after it's built. So it's kind of double-sided there. And I do really like that you guys will own it outright without having to share in the profits of your investors forever. So that's really nice. But obviously I'm biased. So listeners and viewers, go to the besteversshowcommunity.com and give us your opinion and tell us which one you would prefer or which one you do prefer. So with that, guys, Evan, thank you for joining us today. Theo, I'll probably talk to you later today. (laughs) (laughs) 
and everyone have a best ever day. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. The Target Market Insights podcast is just that, a show solely dedicated to help you learn about target markets through the people successfully shaping them. The show features professionals who work directly with the audience and market you want to connect with in real estate. Listen and subscribe today at targetmarketinsights.com. That's targetmarketinsights.com.